Welcome to Living With, a podcast about the stories and people behind Health Union. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. Karen Hoyt is a self-described, incurable optimist who refuses to quit. She is an advocate for Health Union on hepatitisc.net. I want to help everybody with liver disease in general, uh, before, during, and after their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a strong motivation for that. So when I was diagnosed in 2010, I was unaware that my liver was even sick. I was cycling that afternoon and literally had an emergency room diagnosis the next morning because I swelled up and I had been throwing up blood. And mm-hmm. I thought I was throwing up jello because I had been drinking jello as a result of a stomach virus. And it turns out I had liver failure. And in a way, it made me question my whole adult life. I probably got hepatitis C in my 20s. And I've never lived in anyone else's body. So I dealt with health problems just, you know, as they came up. Mm -hmm. I had fatigue. I had muscle aches. I had pain. I had nausea. I had um, confusion and brain fog. I lived my life with sticky notes. I had to try so hard. I felt like I had to try so hard to do things that other people found more easily, my peers who were teachers or even my friends. I didn't know. I looked back, and I'm, I'm kind of bitter about that section of my 20s, 30s, and 40s when my liver was slowly failing, and I didn't even know that I had hepatitis C. Mm. So I, was, I just had to develop all of these skills. So I'd like to make a point from that is that the thing that was my greatest obstacle, which was silent liver disease, a hepatitis C virus destroying my liver, it really caused me to, it invited me to draw on different sources of strength and to develop skills, patterns of thinking. It taught me how to be really resilient. I I didn't know what it was like to live in a healthy body, so I had to work twice as hard just to keep up with everybody else. And in a way, I think it kind of gives me an edge on life now that I've gotten rid of the virus. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. And you your articles and your videos on hepatitis C.net just radiate that positivity. Well, I think when we don't have a choice, you know, you've heard the saying to be bitter or better. I have a real opportunity to be bitter. Hepatitis C, you know, hurt my relationships. My my former husband, I just went to bed. I was sleeping all the time with brain fog. I withdrew from life. I became very lethargic just before my liver failed. I spent a year sleeping a lot mm-hmm. and just being a little, not really contrary, but just leave me alone. I didn't know why I was withdrawing. and All the doctor wanted to do was give me antidepressants. And for people who are going through midlife changes, men and women, we think, well, this is, you know, I've talked to veterans who say, well, I just kind of thought it was this stage of life. Or women say, well, I, I just thought, you know, you get older and you get weak or you get brain fog, not knowing that there was a, a virus destroying your liver. And that's the story of our lives. And so I, I had a lot of losses. My daughter didn't really ever have a healthy mom. She didn't know that, but she didn't have a healthy mom. So some of my, my behavior might have cost her or robbed her of some of the 
the better mothering skills that I might have offered had I been healthy. Mm. And you've mentioned brain fog. Um, is, is that what, that's like the symptom of hepatic encephalopathy? Well, I think people use brain fog as a bit of a blanket. I use it as a blanket statement. Hepatic encephalopathy is really part of end-stage liver disease, and it's when your liver no longer filters. And so the ammonia, the byproduct of your natural waste that your liver produces, gets kind of stuck in your body. And so it just loops through your blood system, and you really are in a drunken-like state. And you may even have huge amounts of memory lapses. I have I have whole months of my life and even sections of years of my life that I don't remember. But mm. I was operating like, like I thought I knew what I was doing. Brain fog is a more, um, I, I think of it as a blanket statement. Sometimes when you're taking medications, you just can't bring things to memory as easily. You might be in pain. Pain could create brain fog. Anything that keeps us from being at our highest state of awareness living fully in our body, living fully in our situation. I, I think I call that brain fog because sometimes you may just be going through a trauma in life. Maybe your doctor, you know, found a shadow on your liver and so they're going to do further testing. You zone out. That's what I call brain fog. Maybe you have had to go on a cold medicine for a while and your liver's not in very good shape and you get zony. Sometimes during the treatment, the brain fog can get even worse because you've got all these medicines gone and you're trying to deal with it all. And then after you get off the treatment, the brain fog lifts. And so in that case, brain fog is kind of a um, just like a cloud that follows you around situationally, where hepatic encephalopathy is a more serious condition that can actually be uh, somewhat measured and treated with medication for more advanced liver disease. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks for the clarification. So do you have any long-term effects from having had hepatitis C? No, hepatitis C destroyed my whole body. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I ended up with... uh, Now, I took the old treatment. I'm so grateful that the researchers and the doctors have come up with new treatment. I... I couldn't wait for them because my liver was failing. So as soon as the old drugs came out, with the, with the um, as soon as the new triple protease inhibitors came out, I was on medication for almost a year with injections at home. It was a pretty rough deal. Mm. And so I think that some of my side effects are from that. After I cleared the virus, I continued going to my doctor every six months for surveillance because my liver was very damaged. I was able to continue my job, but we reduced my responsibilities so that instead of teaching senior language arts and teaching as an adjunct professor, I taught in a smaller classroom. And that way I had a smaller caseload and and grading. Mm -hmm. But even then, I relied a lot more on my peers at, at school to help me, and my principal was very generous. So after the treatment, I I was still very fatigued. I was limited in what I could do. And I had surveillance every six months for cancer and for bleeding varices. My varices continued to bleed after the treatment. Tell me, what what are varices? Well, whenever my liver failed, it was pretty clogged up with scarring or cirrhosis. And so in an attempt to heal my 
liver put out all these bands trying to wrap itself up and make band-aids but instead it just scarred and choked up my liver uh-huh. and so when my blood tried to filter through my hepatic veins then it, they were tightened up they were scarred and so the, the blood would move back up towards my heart it would pump up and as it pumped up it moved up into my stomach and into my esophagus and created little aneurysms, just kind of like little balloons that would pop up in my stomach and my in my esophagus. And I would have to go in every three months and have them banded off. And oh, I took wow. medication for that, but I was still pretty choked off. And that will that will also cause internal bleeding, which can increase hepatic encephalopathy. And so I was still dealing with all of that. And then I was having surveillance every six months in addition to the bandings, and that's when they found a liver tumor, which is very frightening, and I was on a transplant list for almost a year. But because I kept popping new tumors, my tumor kept sending out satellite tumors that had a good blood supply, I was moved up on the list and was given a life-saving transplant four years ago this month. Wow. So now I have a new liver and um, a new start at life. And so it's really easy for me to see how getting a new liver can really make a change in our lives after having hepatitis C. Yet the long-term effects of hepatitis C are still there. With muscle and joint pain, I believe that some of my brain cells, some of my memory, the brain fogginess is probably a permanent part of my life. It sounds sad to talk about, but I know I'm not the person that I once was intellectually, if that makes sense. It does, but you, you also sound very intelligent still, so it sounds like you get by pretty well. I do. I fake it really good, and I think one of the things I like to talk to readers about is that fake it till you make it attitude. And people with hepatitis C are good fakers. We've got a resiliency. Because if we have the disease for a long time especially, and we learn to just kind of fake it, not knowing that the rest of the world felt better than we did, (laughs) we're really good at picking up and moving forward. Endurance and and standing up against the pain um, becomes a really handy tool in our toolbox to get us through. In many of your articles on hepatitis C.net, you share tips on talking to doctors or managing other conditions along with hep C and eating nutritiously. Why do you think it's important for people with hepatitis C to play an active role in their healthcare treatment? Well, I think sometimes doctors assume that you have been a person who hasn't taken good care of their health if you have hepatitis C. When I went into the emergency room, I was alone. I drove myself over there. And the doctor automatically assumed that I was checked my arms to see if I was on methamphetamine, questioned me about drug use and alcoholism. When I got my siblings into the hospital with me in the emergency room, they said, are you kidding? She's the health nut. (laughs) And so from that point on, it became my responsibility to educate my doctors on here's who I am. Whenever we're talking to medical staff, I think it's important that we go in with the idea that, yes, I'm sick, and I want you to be my ally and help me to make good choices. You hold a lot of power in my life. 
but I need you to know who I am. And even though I might be very sick right now and I get choked up because sometimes I could be even argumentative, you don't know me, I would say. You, you don't know me. I can eat a low-sodium diet. I can eat healthy protein. Here's what I'll do. Tell me what I can and can't do. And then I stood from an empowered place with my medical staff. I let them know that I was a, I was a valuable person to myself. Mm-hmm. I feel like that in turn caused my doctor and the medical staff to look at me with new eyes and say, here's a girl who wants to take part in her own health care. And then I would go in, I would say, what's my sodium level this month? Or, hey, can we go in? Let's look. I haven't had a varices fleet in four months. Do we really have to do that next banding? Can I reduce my medicine now? Because then they knew that I was watching my own measurements. I was taking responsibility because let's face it, nobody's coming into our house and looking at the medical records with us. We get home alone with our medical records. Nobody's trying to save my life but me. I can pay people. I can pay doctors. I can call them in, and certainly I've had wonderful care. It's on me to take care of myself. It's on me to save my own life. And I fought for it. And eating healthy and talking to doctors, communicating in an effective way, are all my big tools in my toolbox. I love to share those. That's wonderful. Is that concise? Yeah, it's great. So tell me, you were mentioning just a little bit before we started about music therapy. Tell me what you do with that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my things is um, I believe that anytime you can elevate your emotional state, it'll bring you a, a sense of physical and mental well-being. I found that there were certain Uh, songs that I would listen to whenever I was super sick and thought I was dying. And many people with hepatitis C are so scared. And fear is a strong emotion. And so our emotional life feeds into our mental life and our, our physical life, and it's all tied together. Well, I understood that if I felt emotionally down, my thoughts would spiral down and my body would feel the fatigue or the pain more heavily. And so I thought, well, the one thing I can start with is my thoughts. And how can I elevate my thoughts? So I would turn on music. Well, if I listened to a song that reminded me of a sad event or that reminded me of a time or a place when things weren't going my way, I could get down really quickly or I could get angry or I'd feel a different emotion pop up. And so I thought, well, I'll just only listen to music that makes me feel good. So I got a ukulele. I used to play the guitar, and my hands hurt too bad, and I couldn't, I couldn't strum anymore. So I got a ukulele, and I just, when I was really, really sick, I just sat in the chair and strum little chords. The, the strings are nylon. They're so easy to strum. And I would sing songs from my childhood, out of key to the cat. I mean, it was just... <laughs> but I would sing things that made me happy. So singing to myself made me feel good. And if I'd hear a song in my head, I would just sing it out loud. I think music is an important way to bring um, a lighthearted feeling into our lives. And I'm really grateful that now we have music apps on our phone where we can choose and we can create a soundtrack. Early on, I created a soundtrack of the songs that made me feel good. It had no sad or worried or 
upset memories, no emotions, no negative emotions. And I would play that soundtrack over and over and over. And it was my happy songs. And anytime I felt down, I could just put them on. Some of them were from my childhood, some from my teen years. And those would help to elevate my emotions. Elevated emotions can make you want to get up out of the chair and begin to move around. And when the chemicals then start being released through your body, your mental state. So it's part of my, my whole therapy is to elevate my emotions with music and other things, but music's a big part of it. I love that. I'm, I'm a musician as well. And one of the things when I've gone through tough times, I've made myself playlists, but I actually don't completely avoid the negative emotions. Like one of my playlists at, at one time, I started with a couple sad songs and then it went to kind of more of an empowerment and then happy. So if you played the whole playlist, you get, you could feel, you know, you could acknowledge the sad and then move through to the other. So I, I just love that you do that. Yeah, that's really, I'm going to, I'm writing that down. That's really wisdom because I, I recommend this to a lot of people. And um, because I think like you, I believe that processing the negative emotions and just sitting with ourselves in that. So there have been times when I was at the MRI last week for my, my four-year cancer-free MRI. And I remember my first MRI, which was August 2010, where they said, you need to stay, you need blood transfusions, we've got to find out what's wrong with your liver. And when I walked into the cancer center, I, all this emotion flooded over me, and I got in my car, and I just cried all the way across town from the cancer center to the hospital. I pulled over and just let myself shake a little bit mm-hmm. with, uh, I believe, feeling that letting my body and my mind and my emotions release that negative and then by the time I stepped into the hospital, I was feeling like a million bucks, like you, that progression. Um, and it's not easy. We want, to, we want to break out of the negative mm-hmm. and move right into the positive. That's not always so healthy. You mentioned shaking, that, and that's such a natural reaction mm-hmm. to a traumatic or stressful event is our body's shake. Have you ever heard of TRE or tension-releasing exercises? No, but I'm writing that down too. It's, it's such an amazing thing. It was started by this man, David Berselli, who was working with um, communities in Africa that had been you know, war-torn. And he was seeing trauma on such a huge scale. And he was trying to come up with a way to help these people process and release their trauma. And he realized that if you watch animals, like if you watch dogs after they've been in a dog fight or ducks or almost every animal when they get out of the stressful event they shake and they they just like tremble all over and then they're done with it because you know animals don't have the story that we all have that we carry with us so he started creating these exercises where you just you allow your body to shake and it allows your body to release that trauma or that stress and I, I think it's such a, a beautiful and easy way to, to let go of some of that. Well, I'm going to have to look that up. Actually, I, di- I didn't know about TRE, but I saw a thing on YouTube. Some I don't even remember when or where. but It showed a polar bear, polar bear being tranquilized with a tranquilizer gun so they could check it. And, mm-hmm. and the polar bear, when it came out of the tranquilizer, went through a shaking process. Yep. So I understood, I thought, I get that. 
And that's why, um, and so back to hepatitis C and how that connects. Many times with hepatitis C, whenever I would be, um, before I was diagnosed, like I'd be driving on, on, a, on the expressway, say, you know, going from, from home to work, to, to school. And if it had been a long day and I'd had a lot going on, I didn't know I had hepatitis C, but my right knee would start to shake. Mm-hmm. And I kept going to the doctor with all these crazy symptoms. I'd say, my knees shake a lot when I'm driving. Like if somebody tries to pass me real fast, my knees will shake. They'd say, well, you've got an overactive adrenaline system. And then at other times, I would, I would say, someone could like come up behind me and frighten me, and I would just burst into tears. So students knew that against me. I taught high school, mm-hmm. and they used it against me. So, boy, I had to really put my foot down and just say, don't ever do that, yeah. because it cost me physically for a long time. And I think that was connected to the hepatitis C, obviously, the immune response, the inflammation overload that hepatitis C patients have. I write a lot about trauma because I believe hepatitis C, the big picture of that is if we've had it for any amount of time, even if we don't have liver disease, there's a trauma with having this big inflammatory response in our body. And maybe that's any illness, you know, would probably include any illness, but the mind-body connection with hepatitis C, and it has to do with that, letting your body release the stress of it. We Mm -hmm. do stress easier. We need to release that physical stress that we've got. And then I believe that's the key to moving on after you've gotten rid of the virus. I see a lot of questions in our community where people are saying, well, the virus is gone, but if they had a little bit of advanced disease, but I'm not recovering in this area or this area. I think we have to look at new ways of recovering from the hepatitis C virus after we're cured. And some of that may be processing the trauma of it. That's such a good point, that, that the healing continues after the medication is over. Why do you think it's important for people with hepatitis C to have an online community? When I was first diagnosed with hepatitis C, there were no online communities. And I would tended to look in the middle of the night when I was afraid. I had reverse sleep pattern, with um, mo- like most people do. And I was just awake and looking for any kind of answers. I felt like I was the only one. And that's when I vowed, if I make it through this, I'll start an online community, which is why I started the Best Friends Guide. Because we need to see evidence that we're going to make it. And it still chokes me up. Mm. I needed to see the face of a person who said, me, I, I had hepatitis C, and I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. Once the communities began to grow and we found more evidence, wow, there's another side to this. People survive. People make it. People who are throwing up blood or turning yellow. People whose lives are destroyed. People who can't afford treatment. People who can't work. They're all making it. There is another side. And just being in a relationship with those people is so healing. That alone was probably as important as any medical care I got. Even now, the friends that I've made and the new friends that I continue to make, they're like my closest, closest friends. We talk about everything. 
we never have to hold back. In the online communities, there's so much understanding. You don't have to try to use words to make somebody get it. We just automatically have empathy with each other. Add water and stir. It's instant empathy is what I call it. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Karen. It's just been a delight to talk to you. And we are so grateful that you're a part of our community. It feels so good to be a part of the health union community because this is a place where sick people matter. And yeah. sick people's voices are heard and understood and encouraged and even applauded. I love working with you guys. Thank you so much. To read Karen's articles and join the conversation, visit hepatitisc.net. You can also find the community on Facebook and Twitter. You can find additional health communities at health-union.com. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward.